1: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today welcome to the new books network
2: hello and welcome to new books and national security a podcast channel on the new books network i'm john sakulariatis the host of the channel on the show today we are pleased to have professor john Ferris. John is a professor of history at the University of Calgary, and he has written a monumental operational and organizational history of Britain's signals intelligence agency, GCHQ. We'll be talking to John about that book, which is called Behind the Enigma, the Authorized History of GCHQ, Britain's Secret Cyber Intelligence Agency. John, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, John. Since this is a book about intelligence, I want to start with sources and methods, How does one write a history about an organization that primarily operates in secret?
3: You need to have access to its material. In this particular case, essentially the end of the Second World War marked a divide. Up to the end of the Second World War, the material on GCHQ, the government communications headquarters, is essentially in the public domain, with the exception of some really technical material about the details of breaking codes. After the summer of 1945, the material on GCHQ and also the National Security Agency is essentially classified, although some material has been released. So I was offered the opportunity to write an authorized history, which meant I was given access to the mainstream of GCHQ policy records and also records on a full complete records on a number of specific instances like SIGINT and the Falklands Conflict of 1982. But at the same time, I was also told I wouldn't be able to see material on certain issues, which is fine with me. Those issues were anything on the technicalities of code-breaking, diplomatic code-breaking, because in the end, governments don't like to admit that they're breaking the codes of other governments in peacetime. And also, there's an issue called equities, which in the intelligence world means that if two agencies work together on a project and one wants to release material on it, the other one has the ability to insist that it be written out of the story. Now, as it turned out, those problems didn't really matter. And in fact, I got more material on all of those issues than I was initially promised. But essentially what happened is that I was given privileged access to a significant swathe of GCHQ's material, in order to write this book. Now, the good news is the GCHQ is now going to release most of the material it gave me access to. And in fact, sometime in the next few months, some of that material will start to go up, oddly enough, on their website. And what that means is that although what I've written is currently, um, based on material that only I've seen, within, I would hope, about five years, any historian or any person who wants to can actually go over the material and say, is Ferris right here? Or could more have been said about that? So essentially the compromise was I was temporarily given access to material no one else has seen so that I could write a book based on an analysis that no one else could have done. But fairly soon other people will be able to check my sources like they would any historical account.
2: And you have been covering uh, British signals intelligence and signals intelligence in general since the 80s, correct?
3: As a graduate student, when I was doing a PhD, I discovered lots and lots of material that wasn't supposed to be in the files about British signals intelligence. And when other people told me I couldn't be saying what I was seeing, I started to say, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'll look aggressively for more material and write about it. So I think I've been researching and writing longer in the field of signals intelligence than anyone else. And I'd say it's really around 1982 that it became the primary topic. I have written more material, more articles and, and books on British SIGINT than I think anyone else has done, even leaving aside the authorized history which is why I was given the option of being the authorized store.
2: Fantastic. So let's uh, let's jump in. Your book outlines changes in how the proverbial SIGINT sausage gets made over time, uh, but there are many constants to that story as well. So can you describe some of the features of the process of producing SIGINT that are uh, consistent across space and time?
3: First of all, it always deals with all forms of communication that are commonly used by your targets. That means that you are almost always attacking the most sophisticated and advanced forms of communication. It always involves the most advanced forms of information processing available at any time. So in 1914, that means an effective card index. Um, nowadays, it means being able to function with the most sophisticated forms of computers available. It always involves teams. And one of the things I learned very early on is that SIGINTERS SIG is the term they use to describe themselves. It's like soldiers or sailors. They think of themselves as belonging to a community of SIGINTERS. They see themselves as belonging to teams and those teams really fall into some almost permanent organizations, people who intercept communications. Whether that is a a wireless intercept uh, operator with headphones on, whether it is someone today going through um, the internet searching for metadata, it always involves people who are data processors. In other words, people who can help you collect and process data in an effective fashion. And again, these are the most sophisticated practitioners of the time. It always involves analysts, that is to say people who actually assess the material which is coming in and analyze it in ways that any intelligence analyst would work, except very often they're extraordinarily technical. And finally, it involves cryptanalysts, people who actually can break into encryption systems. Now, the most scarce of the the people involved in those teams are the cryptanalysts. And they're what makes code breaking and SIGINT a unique discipline. But when you add them to everybody else, what you've got are forms of intelligence collection, which are distinct and very powerful. Because from the moment SIGINT emerges, which is 1914, it rapidly becomes clear that SIGINT is far and away the most important form of secret intelligence that you can have. And it's stayed that way ever since.
2: Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question, because I wanted to ask you how British SIGINT comes into being. And, um, you know, perhaps if you could differentiate between the implementation of certain SIGINT practices on an ad hoc basis and say the War War versus the institutionalization of a genuine SIGINT capability in the U.K.?
3: Well, the Brits, like many Western European states, in the middle 1600s until the middle 1800s, have permanent code-breaking agencies, which focus entirely on diplomatic communications. Um, In those days, it's relatively easy to intercept diplomatic communications because it's all sent through the post, believe it or not. Um, It's relatively difficult to collect military or naval communications. The British give it up in the middle 19th century because they don't think they're getting anything from it, which is indicative. They probably weren't. But from around the 1890s, they start to think about forms of, of communications intelligence, censoring cables in time of war. In the Boer War, they do practice everything that can be done at that time. And the end result is that in the decade before the First World War, there actually are a number of full-time cryptanalysts working for the British government and the Indian Army as well. And the army and British Army and Navy have worked out ideas about how to use it. And so when the war breaks out, they immediately say, we're going to create code-breaking agencies. They have, in the case of the Army, some experts have already done it. And they rapidly create organizations which are good. Now, for what it's worth, the Germans and the French are doing the same thing. The only people in the world who have actually got a military code breaking agency in June 1914 are the Austria, Austro-Hungarians. Um, so every what major Western state rapidly is competing with each other to develop this new form of intelligence, which they quickly realize is providing material that no one believed would be possible, and that really could help you in the war.
2: And how does British SIGINT ultimately perform in World War One?
3: Very well. I actually, <coughs> I myself think that it performs across the board better than any other national SIGINT organization, although the Austro-Hungarian Army probably remains technically the best all the way through the war. Unfortunately, the Austro-Hungarian Army is not particularly good. So the SIGINT doesn't help them very much. Um, the British pioneer a number of things which are astounding. Um, they're the people who develop, I think, and the evidence is not absolutely clear, but I will put my money on it. They're the people who develop traffic analysis, which is actually one of the two great forms of SIGINT, and it's the one that's most commonly used by governments today. Basically, traffic analysis means you are monitoring the external features of any communications link. So what that means in the First World War is you can see the relationships between levels of command or between spotting aircraft and groups of artillery. And from that, you can generate really useful intelligence. Nowadays, traffic analysis is used to go over metadata and try to figure out who groups of terrorists, for example, are communicating with so that you can reconstruct their social networks and go after them more effectively. The other thing the British do is invent bulk collection. And bulk collection is how SIGINT works today. In other words, you simply collect billions of messages a day. You try to process them, and then you flush them out of your system because you can't hold them for that long. But in the First World War, the British intercept about, this is a literal statement, one billion cable messages, wireless messages, or C-mail letters about um, the economy but involving neutral and enemy states and businesses. And the British used this to direct the blockade of the First World War. And they're actually able to find a way by which you can index every proper noun in every one of those messages. And trust me, that's not easy to do. And then actually retrieve every single message that might refer Refer to the name of some Norwegian banjo maker in a fjord north of Oslo. And that's a, an example I'm actually taking from an internal history um, within two hours. So what they're what they're doing is actually creating the ways that modern sigint works within a year of the birth of sigint. And when I showed that material to present-day siginters in the United States and Britain, they fell over. They couldn't believe how powerful and early um, these developments were. Across the board in the First World War, you have to remember the Germans are good, and so are the Austrians. And so the trade-off is one in which the French and the British, and later the Americans, are good. They're up against good opponents. I'd say the British are the best of them all, but the Germans, a large part of the reason why the Russian army is demolished on the Eastern Front in the First World War, is because the Germans have much better SIGINT and them, But I'd say their performance is very good, especially given the fact really nobody was ready for what they were going to do. Reading your
2: book, I was, I was floored by exactly what you just alluded to, which was kind of the tedious details that go into SIGINT and the you know immense administrative uh, burden of data collection and, and data practice in this kind of pre-digital age. Can you talk a little bit more about that, especially during World War I? And if I remember correctly, I think you offered a kind of tooth-to-tail ratio between your all-star cryptanalysts versus the administrative support staff.
3: Well, what I would say is that you're probably talking about less than 5% of the people who are involved in the SIGINT effort. And in the British case, that's around 9,000 people in 1918. Less than 5% of them really are doing cryptanalysis or code breaking. About 10 to 15% are doing forms of analysis. In other words, you don't, you don't actually break the code, but you have the messages and you start to make sense of it. Um, I'd say that the two largest groups of people are clerical staff who basically process data and intercept operators. And the intercept operators are either doing cable or Morse radio. There's a very small body of people who are using voice radio. No, sorry, voice telephone intercept. Because as it turns out, a lot of if you're dealing with communications in the front line, you're using telephone wires which leak into the ground. And bizarrely enough, you can actually intercept that communications of the enemy. But since that is being handled by voice, those intercept operators are actually listening to German or French or English, as the case may be. So that is now the bulk of the people who are involved are doing clerical processing work, support work, or interception. And I'd say that probably the ratio of analysts and cryptanalysts to the whole is not far from what you'd find today.
2: Now, before we move on to World War II, uh, I did want to ask you about your methodology, which may have been informal when it comes to kind of grading the performance of British British Siggins, which is something you do repeatedly throughout the book. And um, what was interesting to me, you are careful to distinguish... were to draw out the limits of SIGINT. So there's a difference between what SIGINT can do on the offense versus on defense, you know, in the era of trench warfare versus mobile warfare in World War II. Can you talk, and then I should also say there's, you know, ComSec versus more offensive SIGINT. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought of integrating all those pieces when you kind of doled out your grades for British SIGINT in these cases?
3: I've been doing it from the beginning. I think the important thing here is that although I'm not any longer
2: really a military historian,
3: I was trained as a military historian, and I still do a lot of writing in the area. And what that meant is that I was always thinking in systematic terms, and the so what question was always in my mind. Um, So when I was able to reconstruct what intelligence might be saying about a specific issue, naturally what I then said is, okay, now that you've got this intelligence and you're giving it to a commander, what can he do with it? And... From that point of view, trying to look at the whole thing systematically and then say, where are you strong, where are you weak, is just the natural way that I thought about doing things. Now, what that meant is that I was actually approaching, first of all, back in those days, when I started out, there were, you know, I could, there were maybe five people in the world or ten who were really working systematically in the history of singing. And far and away, the best of us all was Brad Smith, now departed, but really a very good friend of mine, but also an extraordinarily good historian. But what made me unlike them is that on the one hand, I had the technical ability to understand how things were being collected, but I also understood how policy worked, which Brad did too. But nonetheless, what I really always wanted to do was say, okay, how do you combine knowing how it can be collected with then knowing how it can be used? And I simply always ask the so what question. Whereas if you look at the almost everything that's written about SIGINT history, and this is not intended to be disparaging, most of it focuses on pretty technical issues, which is important because actually... Addressing those issues is very hard, and very few people can do that well. But I always try to carry it forward, and so therefore, asking the so what question, which is how and why does it matter, is always in my mind. And then the fact that I sit down and say how does how does intelligence affect diplomacy is against um, military operations. Well, that's simply because of the training I have as a military historian. Now, the distinction between communication security and Um, communications intelligence is one which actually very few SIGINT historians actually focus on. At a very early stage, I found that the easiest way to get material on SIGINT from militaries was to go through, believe it or not, signals files, because signals files couldn't hide records on communication security. You couldn't write them out. They're too important for the way signals services work. I've got probably 100,000 pages worth of copies of basically signals, core um, material. And in turn, what that did was cause me to see how important communication security was. Now, for what it's worth, anybody working in the field understands the importance of communication security. And I remember when David Kahn, the great um, significant historian, first wrote to me after he'd written or read something I'd written. He said to me, you're absolutely right. Communication security is much more important to anybody than communications intelligence. Preserving the secrecy of what you're trying to do is actually more important than gathering material on the other side. But it's the simple fact that I actually sit down and look carefully at the ComSec record. And finally, I can also tell you professional signatures always agree that ComSec is incredibly boring. And it's very, very hard to make it interesting to readers. But in this authorized history, I do spend a lot of time on it. And actually, I've written a lot that's pretty technical on communication security over the years because of its importance.
2: It's probably high time we uh, fast forward a little bit to Bletchley Park, which I imagine many of our listeners are eager to hear about. Um, Something I loved about your book is how you take us beyond the theoretical genius of Alan Turing um, to illustrate some of the practical managerial and operational challenges that uh, Bletchley Park during war must uh, overcome. So can you lead us through some of that history and kind of explain your assessment of British performance, British SIGINT performance in World War II?
3: Well, first of all, as an historian, I've gone through the records of many American, French, British, Australian, Canadian um, military and intelligence organizations, and I've never seen anything like Bletchley Park. It's far and away the most impressive organization I've had to deal with. Um, the official historian of British intelligence, um, Harry Insley, who also actually was an important analyst there, described Bletchley as operating on the basis of creative anarchy. And when you actually get to the more creative elements of it, it's true. Um, Basically, computing science is being created as a discipline by the same people who are breaking Enigma. So in in intellectual terms, it really is quite high-powered. And the only organization which confronts similar issues is the Manhattan Project on a much bigger scale. But nonetheless, what Turing is doing is fundamental. However, having said that, the the key point that strikes me is that when you look at it, you find lots of of organizations behaving really at the very high end of possible behavior. So before the war, the head of G.C. Government Code and Cipher School, Alistair Denniston, he and, and his organization think that Enigma is going to be impossible to break, but nonetheless... Denniston says, if we were going to break it, what would we need? we need some bright young mathematicians. And because British codebreakers actually generally had a decent mathematical background, they already knew what they wanted from mathematicians. Um, British university mathematicians, compared to German or American, still do much more applied math rather than theoretical math. And that's what uh, Deniston is looking for. And they end up hiring four mathematicians, two of whom, as it turns out, are fundamental to the way Ultra works. One of whom is Turing, who's clearly the most original mind of them all. But the other is Gordon Welchman, a man who has great organizational skill and is actually able to see how to make the whole thing work. Now, if you're looking for talent spotting, this is great. Well, by the time Turing and Welchman reach Bletchley, Um, The Poles had given the British their previous work against Enigma, which had been pretty successful, but stopped because at a certain stage, the Germans were making attacks so complex the Poles couldn't handle them because they couldn't afford to buy data processing machines. Simple as that. So with all of this in hand, what happens is that Turing learns basic cryptanalysis sees what the Poles have done, and within a few months, understands the logic of the German Enigma system and the weaknesses in it, and conceptualizes a way to attack the the system by machine. So he he comes up with design parameters for a crypto machine. He gives his stuff to Turing, uh, to Welchman to look at, and the next morning, Welchman shows Turing a way to double of power of Turing's proposal. Then they go to the um, second in command of of GCNCS, a man named Edward Travis, and say, this is what we've got. But if you're going to have a chance to break Enigma, you're going to need to spend a lot of money. And essentially, Travis says, give me a minute. Travis then turns toward his uh, boss, who's the head of British secret intelligence, C, as he's the, nickname, the uh, letter goes. And the C of the times, a man named Brigadier General Stuart Menge says, how much money will you need? 200,000 pounds. Here's a check. Now, 200,000 pounds is more than the budget for British code breaking at this point. And it's the single biggest expenditure British code breakers have ever made. So this is all in the space of 24 hours. Immediately, the British turned to the head of the most advanced data processing uh, company in in Britain, which is called British Tabulating Machines, which is unique in the world in having A, access to all IBM um, patents, and B, the free ability to alter IBM patents. Bizarrely enough, because all IBM machines work when it comes to accounting, on dollars and cents, whereas in the British case, which includes 25% of the world, um, you need to have pounds, shilling pence. So this means that BTM actually is an organic team to design its own systems, and one of the best data process processing designers in the world, named Doc Keen. So BTM is given a check for 200,000 pounds. Doc Keen is told, "Can you build this machine?" And he says, "Yes, I think I can." And what Keen does is build the most um, complicated data processing machine ever known. Far, far more complicated than anything else. Now, it takes about nine months to get the first two models to launch. But what you're basically saying is that it takes nine months from the moment when you conceptualize how to attack the most complex data processing problem ever attempted to building a machine that is far more powerful and complex than any of us ever known, and to make it work. Now, on top of that, in the interim, Welchman has figured out how what type of organization you would need to exploit this material if it works. And he goes again to Travis and says, look, assuming that these bonds, as they're called, work, we're going to get material of overwhelming uh, quantity." And if we're going to deal with that, we need to have an organization that's strong enough to handle it. And he says, by the way, that will mean we need an organization that is double the size of what we have now. And Travis looks at him and says, well, young man, that's what we'll do. So in essence, what you've got is a situation where you have governments doing incredibly good things as fast as you possibly can. And then when the material emerges, the British start to process it. And because the British already know how to process large amounts of material, they simply do it in ways that no one else thinks of. When American codebreakers really finally start to see what the British are doing in 1943, they fall off their chairs. Um, the people they send over to British codebreaking centers write letters ba- or cables back to their authorities in um the American Navy or Army, saying, we have no idea how to do these things. The British are light years ahead of us. Um, Two old gentlemen can produce more material than 20 young Harvard undergraduates whom we have in our system. And so, in effect, what the British simply do is come up with um, the most advanced means of code-breaking that anyone had ever seen or thought of, And although the Germans and Americans in most areas are across the board as good as the Brits are, I mean, basically, when it comes to applied technology and science, they're all pretty strong. In this particular area, the British are simply light years ahead of the competition. Now, that doesn't mean that Ultra wins the war. What it does mean is that you're giving the Anglo-American forces unsurpassed quality and intelligence in order to fight them.
2: And ultimately, if I recall your assessment correctly, you say, uh, while British is on the defensive, Ultra has, I don't know if negligible impact is a fair assessment, but uh, less than real monumental impact on the course of the war. But as the Brits and the Americans begin to go on the offensive, and particularly when it comes to an alliance politics with the United States and the UK, uh, the successes of British SIGINT and ULTRA begin to play a really um, central role in British policy.
3: Exactly. The first point is that in 1939-40, the Germans and Italians have good SIGINT agencies. And in fact, some German SIGINT agencies remain very good, even in 1944. So the enemy is able to exploit weaknesses in British and American communication security to equalize what ULTRA is doing. The second thing is that if you're going to make intelligence useful, it has to support an action. And for various reasons, the British find it very hard to launch offensives against the Axis until the summer of 42. Now, by the summer of 42, the, the British are creating a, con- a continually growing intelligence superiority over the enemy. And then when the Americans start to aid the British, major offenses are possible. And from that moment on, Ultra really matters, but Ultra doesn't win the war. Um, you know, Eisenhower, at the end of the war, writes a letter to the authorities at Bletchley, thanking them very much. It's very clear how impressed he is. And what he says is, your work saved countless thousands of Allied lives. And I think Eisenhower had the right approach. Um... I wouldn't, as a military historian, want to say that ULTRA did much more than, say, end the war, help end the war a few months earlier than might have happened and save tens or perhaps hundreds of thousands of Allied lives. But that matters. And beyond that, it means that at the very end of the war, the political position of the Western world in Europe is much stronger than you might have thought it would be in 1942. And finally, I will say, if you look at the way we fight the Germans, 1942 to 45, we do pretty well. We kill or capture far more of them than they do of us. And the Germans are not an easy opposition. And I would say that ULTRA does a lot to make it easier for us to win those victories. Although at that point, judgments become complicated and you have to make many of them at the same time.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: So those uh, successes during World War II ultimately translate into this remarkable intelligence sharing arrangement between the United States and the UK and later the rest of the Five Eyes. And you dedicate an an entire chapter to that relationship in the book. Uh, And one thing you say that stood out is that that relationship is, and I believe, or sorry, was, and I believe you say is still so close that NSA and GCHQ feel more comfortable with each other than each does with many of their bureaucratic compatriots. Oh, absolutely.
3: So, um,
2: yeah. Talk a little bit about the special relationship, how it formed, and, and why it endures.
3: I've had the chance to see it from the inside in the sense that I, as a civilian, have been the only person occasionally, only civilian, um, in meetings between... British, Canadian, American, SIGINTers. I've had the chance to talk to lots of them. And there's no question that the SIGINT relationship is much closer than it is with, say, human intelligence. CIA and MI6 cooperate, but they're much more transactional than GCHQ and NSA are today. Um, i found that if you're in meetings between Canadian and American SIGINTers, hockey, strangely enough, becomes a a common topic because lots, it turns out, lots of American SIGINTers are actually interested in the hockey. Um, but what happens really is, is that at the end of the Second World War, the British and American governments confront the question of the like this. In the war, our SIGINT agencies have simply been working together very, very closely, and we've done a lot for. As a result and we've seen what the results are now that the germans and japanese are beaten while the russians are an uncertain and somewhat unpleasant problem do we want to split our second agencies which will mean that we must then treat each other as rivals and therefore must dedicate some of our attention to each other away from the common problem of the russians or do we continue to cooperate?" And when the American Joint Chiefs of Staff give their advice to Harry Truman on this issue in August 1945, they coined the idea of the danger of a nuclear or an atomic Pearl Harbor. And what they say to Truman is that continued cooperation with British Sigent is a vital American national interest. So in effect, what they're saying is, From our point of view, we can't be secure unless we continue that SIGINT cooperation. But American and British governments can't openly acknowledge what they're doing. and In in fact, what the Americans are doing, I would argue, is probably strictly speaking illegal in some ways. Um, But in effect, what happens is that the highest levels of American and British decision making say to their SIGINT agencies, you go make an arrangement you're happy with then maybe you should tell us about it. You can't make a treaty because this is not a treaty, but you can make an arrangement. Um, Now, as it turns out, in the end, because the Pearl Harbor Inquiry in the United States blows up about the same time, ultimately Truman is not fully informed of everything that happens, whereas Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, is. And Truman isn't fully informed because the heads of the Joint Chiefs of Staff believe that if they fully inform him, they're leaving him exposed to a political danger if the Republican Party comes after Truman, the way it has been trying to come after Roosevelt in the Pearl Harbor inquiry. But the end result is you end up with a permanent arrangement, so far, between the signals intelligence agencies of two countries where essentially they agree that in most of what they do, they will cooperate fully and transparently with each other, um, which means that they're working more closely together in the most vital forms of state intelligence than any other organizations have done in history, except themselves in the Second World War. And their governments are free to walk away from the agreement whenever they want. But in the interim, you go on sharing intelligence and working with each other. And as it turns out, GCHQ and NSA developed together. And in fact, one later head of CIA calls them Siamese twins, okay. um, which is, a, I must say, an odd metaphor. But they do grow together. And even today, if you were to ask the people in SIGINT and Cheltenham or for me, whether they'd like to break with the other side, almost everybody would say no, because we get so much from the other side that we're not sure how well we'd perform if we broke with them. I can also tell you that, however, when you talk to, to current American and British signators, they're not certain that that is going to continue much longer. They're not certain that you'll continue to have the shared sense of common problems, which guided the way the Five Eyes worked in the Cold War and in the 30 years afterward.
2: Let's uh, move forward and talk about some of the people who work at GCHQ. That's a big part of the story you tell in this book. Um, So who were they? Where were they educated? What were they like? You know, who among them succeeds and why? and, And how do they all work together?
3: I wanted to write a social history in part. I'm not a social historian, but I knew that had to be done because... If you look at all the military services in the world, they all have histories written about them that talk about the most social organizations. And that had never been done for any SIGINT agency. And from the moment that I started to interact personally with SIG interns, which is really the mid nineties, I looked at them from a kind of an anthropological point of view. I was always thinking, Why are you guys like this? What are you who are you? And so the answer I came up with for GCHQ is that from our point of view today as educated North Americans, the most striking thing about GCHQ in the Cold War is how few university graduates they have. Now, NSA has more. And a large part of the difference is simply that if you look at what school leavers do in Britain, even in the 1980s, compared to Canada, the United States, maybe about 20% of the number of people who go to post-secondary education in North America would do that in Britain. So there's a much smaller number of university graduates. But beyond that, um, the Treasury simply couldn't, wouldn't, I suppose, provide enough money to GCHQ at that time to have a majority of its personnel coming from universities. Now, these things are different today. But I'm talking about the Cold War. And so in the end, the British create this extraordinary um, organization, which does extremely well at in high-end intellectual issues, on the basis of very, very few university graduates. And part of the reason it works is because, as occurs in lots and lots of British firms, essentially... You know, people leave school at 16, they join a firm or GCHQ. They start to work around and rise. And it's accepted, it's normal, that people without anything other than what we call the equivalent of a grade 10 education, perhaps with a couple of years of part-time work afterward, would rise to be, you know, the head of a a middle-sized organization in a hospital, or to be middle management in GCHQ. So strangely enough, there's actually a remarkable amount of room for bright, young, and non-educated people to rise to middle management, GCHQ. And oddly enough, GCHQ is probably the British organization where working class men in the Cold War era are most able to rise to senior positions. And indeed, one head of GCHQ, Peter Marychurch, who comes from a white collar, bottom of the white collar and background, without a degree, becomes a quite successful head of the organization. Now, there is no other British um, organization of its size which is as open to talent from below as GCHQ is. And the standard... Background for almost all other British organization leadership is Oxbridge. You've gone to Oxford or Cambridge. That doesn't happen in GCHQ. Um, if you look at the staff beyond that, what you find is that there are two huge groups which, between them, can, and comprise most of the people who work for GCHQ radio operators, almost all of whom are ex military in background. They're the people who sit there with headphones listening to things in the ether, and women who are working in clerical or data processing organizations. Um, and you know, you're dealing with the time when, in order to take an intercept to a finished form which can be used by an analyst, you might actually have to reproduce that. Bit of information 14 times. Now that's standard for organizations of that period. If you simply think about the number of times you have to retype something, but the retyping has to be absolutely precise and pristine every time. So, what you've got in, in the case of GCHQ is a situation where men do one kind of work, women do another, which of course is pretty standard across the Western world at the time. Until you come to intelligence processing, which is the core of what GCHQ is doing, it's gathering intelligence, it's breaking systems. And when it comes to breaking systems, it's almost all males, but not entirely all males. But when you come to intelligence analysis, then you actually have work groups where women and men work together side by side. Women don't make it to the top of those work groups, but often they make it to the middle management. And in fact, when you look at British security and intelligence organizations in the Cold War, um, women rise much higher in GCHQ than anywhere else. And as I say, the striking thing, however, and what really it took me a while to come to terms with is the fact that they're learning on the job. They don't have formal education past a high school level, although I can also tell you from experience when I moved to Britain as a graduate student in 1978. That the um, British education system, even in public, even in what we would call uh, a public school, not by the, the British terminology, was much better than that in North America. So, my own view when I looked at 18 year olds in Britain, high school, gra- equivalent of the high school graduates, is that they were two years ahead of most high school graduates in any Canadian or American school.
2: Now, you did also, you, you don't shy away from some of the, I believe you called them warts, if not in the book, in an interview that I read before this story of GCHQ. And one of them was a hiring ban on people of color that took place uh, for a nearly two-decade period in between the 1960s and 1980s. Can, can you talk about that of
3: briefly? Course. As soon as I saw the material, I knew I had to read about it. Um, and it became slightly a bigger part of the story than... It should have been, because actually I wrote a lot about women and their status and virtually no newspaper picked that up. But the color bar thing, what you need to understand is that in the United States, in nineteen forty five, you already have a long standing division between black and white, issues of segregation, etc. etc. But nonetheless, at least there's a long period of coming to come to terms with it. In the case of Britain in 1939, there are not nearly as many non-white people living in Britain as against the British Empire, as there are in the United States. And so when, after the Second World War, you begin to have a larger number of people from South Asia and also the Caribbean and Africa entering Britain, then for Britain as a whole coming to terms with non-white immigrants is really culturally quite traumatic now it's not culturally as traumatic as the civil rights movement is for Americans but when you come to NSA or the American military there is a solution from the late 40s when Harry Truman insists that you desegregate the military and when the military for its own reasons says we have to tap black man or woman power, then your institutions actually immediately find ways to make use of African-Americans in ways that help the institution. So if you look at historically black colleges, in fact, a lot of them have very good data processing programs. And essentially what happens is the NSA will sit back and say, "Okay, we're going to hire a lot of black men and women. We're going to put them into segregated work shifts, which is how it works in the American services in the fifties, which means we will be promoting black men to be middle management. And that's simply the way we'll function. In the case of the UK, they don't have any experience like this. And so across the board in every British department dealing with defense or security, in the early 50s, they enunciate a color bar which they carry on through to the late 60s. And essentially what that means is you won't hire anybody who is black or brown or half-caste to use the terms they use. So one of the things I quote is a long document talking about how you're going to try to keep them out. And one of the, the sentences says, well, lots of Eurasians, and here they're talking about Anglo-Indians. It's really hard to tell from their names whether or not they're white or whether they're actually, you know, half white, half South Asian. And how are we going to deal with those issues? But the end result is that GCHQ, like every other British department dealing with defense and security has a color bar for about 20 years, nobody writing about the British, the other British intelligence services. I think I actually had access to the material that I found on that issue. But when I saw it, I knew it had to go in.
2: One of the major contributions this book makes to the historical record concerns British military campaigns in Palestine, Indonesia, and the Falklands. Uh, There's frankly too much material to go through in a podcast, but I'd love um, to ask you whether there was one case study in particular you wanted to highlight And tell our listeners uh, what you learned.
3: I'd like to talk about the the Indonesian case because you your listeners won't know about it. It happens at the same time as Vietnam and on the face of it it looks as though the British are facing the same problem the Americans do in Vietnam and win, whereas the Americans don't win in Vietnam. Um, But it's not quite simple. What essentially happens is that this is a, a post-colonial situation. The British are trying to find ways to hand over their old colonies to friendly local regimes that will then not threaten British economic interests. And in the case of Malaysia, the state of Indonesia is trying to interfere with what the British are doing. Indonesia in the 1960s is has the third largest communist party in the world. It is actually a major revolutionary threat that's trying to destroy the British attempt to create Malaysia. And what I demonstrate is that when you look at how the British are able to beat a very large scale campaign of terrorism, attempts to create guerrilla warfare, that in fact, the fundamental to the British ability to win is the fact that they're reading a very large fraction of Indonesian military and naval traffic, and also those of Indonesian special forces, and that in effect, the British are able to kill or capture almost all terrorists sent over by Indonesia to Malaysia. They're able to knock out attempts to create guerrilla bases. They're able to use their force with with astounding precision. And finally, what they're actually able to do is to cause the Indonesian state to become fragmented about whether it should continue the war against Britain, which contributes to the events of 1965-66, when there's a civil war in Indonesia, very complex background, um, which leads to the mass slaughter of members of the Indonesian communist party. We're talking about high hundreds of thousands, almost all of whom are ethnic Chinese. So it's a great tragedy. But what it also does is ensure that the British can achieve their main political objective, which is to hand over Malaysia to an independent Malaysian government. Now, the reason why it can't be compared to what happens in Vietnam is quite simply, the Indonesian army wasn't the North Vietnamese army. Um, If you look at the way the British beat the Indonesians, I guarantee the North Vietnamese would simply have escalated and inflicted such damage that the British would not have been able to achieve the victories they do against Indonesia. But nonetheless, it is actually the single most amazing campaign of success against terrorism and guerrilla warfare that I've ever
2: seen. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit now into more of kind of the modern era post-Cold War. The subtitle of your book is The Secret History of GCHQ. Um, But that is slightly misleading, as your readers learn, um, because GCHQ in the last decade has begun to step out of the shadows and play a much more public role. And that is a transition that's uh, precipitated in some part by the disclosures of Edward Snowden. Can you talk about why GCHQ decided to do that and how greater transparency, far from Uh, undermining the public's kind of romantic imagining of what the organization is capable of actually enhances its credibility and trust in British society.
3: All Western SIGINT agencies were anal in terms of their approach towards secrecy and their opposition to transparency in the Cold War. NSA starts to move away from it in the middle 1990s, and it becomes more open um GCHQ remains more distant, although after two thousand and one, GCHQ starts to talk to some academics, including me and others, uh, journalists, businessmen. But nonetheless, it really wants to remain hidden as far as it possibly can. It doesn't want to be any more transparent than it has to be. Now, two events, change their understanding of what they have to do. One of them is the Snowden leaks. Now, GCHQ and NSA both um, insist on a do not confirm or do not deny approach towards Snowden. But both the British and American governments have openly said Snowden did work for NSA. Some of what he released or leaked was authentic, although not necessarily all of it. and Not actually be cautious about believing that everything you see in the press attributed to Snowden actually came from uh, material in the NSA. Now, this shocked both the British and the Americans. NSA really, in some ways, was inflicted a body blow, that it has not fully recovered from Um, In the case of GCHQ, they were lucky. On the one hand, they had no idea how to respond to the leaks. I mean, they had virtually no legal department. Their... uh, this may sound bizarre, but it's true. Their media or press department essentially liaised with the local newspaper in Cheltenham, lost to and it did not <laughs> liaise with any national newspapers. And the only thing that saved them is that the leaders of every British political party said openly, nothing that GCHQ did was done without us being properly informed. They always asked us in advance properly whether they could adopt this technique or not. And on top of that, what GCHQ did saved lives. Whereas I have to be brutally frank here, um, American politicians didn't have the courage to do the same thing. And so Diane Feinstein, um, Barack Obama, and others, who in fact had been as informed, I must tell you, as the British had been, about what NSA were doing, wouldn't provide that kind of political cover to NSA. So that helped GCHQ get by a a tough time. But the end result was they understood now that they couldn't hope to maintain the level of secrecy they'd done before. The other and the much bigger point was that by 2010, it was increasingly clear to GCHQ and to NSA, by the way, as well, that their functions had changed. We were were moving into what I call the second age of SIGINT. The first stage is characterized by state versus state work. You're attacking military traffic on high-frequency radio. The main consumers are military or diplomatic agencies. And in the modern era with the internet, essentially we're conducting society versus society conflicts where our people are threatened directly by other governments in ways that technically have not been possible before, but even worse, they're threatened by cyber criminals across the world. And at the same time, the way we all came to live on the internet meant that Western people are increasingly providing data about their lives and themselves voluntarily to corporations at home and potentially to cyber criminals abroad. And this became clearly a threat to national security. Um, if cyber criminals are ripping off hundreds or tens of thousands of you know American pensioners, that's not something which a government can afford to ignore. If you're going to protect your people, you have to deal with those issues. And so GCHQ essentially decided that it was going to need to have a partly secret, partly public organization that would publicly help British firms, British people, understand threats, problems, and solutions. And so GCHQ, in fact, knew that it was going to have to be much more open than before in order to function. And indeed, if you look at the British press in the past, say, five years, you will find that the heads of GCHQ and of this civilian organization which is the National Cybersecurity Center, are constantly being interviewed in the press. Their reports are repub- are published openly because they're meant to be read by people, and indeed they're providing advice on all sorts of things. Um, you know, current example: Well, NSA, GCHQ, and the Five Eyes counterparts, um, we're all trying to prevent foreign secret agencies from looting scientific research being applied to developing vaccines for COVID-19. And so from GCHQ's point of view, the old approach towards secrecy wasn't possible. And the decision they made really, two years after Snowden was, we're going to have to become open, more open than before, translucent, not transparent. And I'm borrowing the word translucent from a friend of mine as an ex- American uh Dave Sherman. Well, essentially what that means is that you are making things more open, but you're still maintaining the level of secrecy you need for SIGINT to function. And the reason that they asked me to write this book was part of that decision to become translucent. And as I say, they gave me... Limited access, but nonetheless enough to be able to write a clear account of the mainstream of GCHQ history that previously had been history. They allowed me to write a a warts and all approach. And in fact, I made sure that whenever I had anything to say GCHQ had failed at, I put it in. They did not attempt to censor what I write or wrote. And I have nothing but respect for the way they allowed me to do what I did. But the final point that I would say out of all of this is that the fact that they became translucent reflects the change in the way SIGIN works. It used to be simply a very esoteric means by which states collected intelligence on each other. Now it's part of the daily way that states and societies interact on the commons of the internet across the world. And I am afraid that will not change. And I must say, I'm not particularly thrilled with a lot of what's involved, but that means it shows how the focus on secrecy. No longer can be as characteristic of SIGINT as it once was. One theme you
2: kind of pull out throughout the story is the balance between craft and industry in the production of SIGINT. I'm curious where you think the balance lies today. I mean, I'll give you my opinion and you can sure. kind of tear it apart That's just good. as an example. Um, it seems like kind of the apogee of SIGINT as craft, at least in your story is World War One. Conversely, the apogee of SIGINT as industry is World War II, in particular, Ultra. Um, and I think today it has not actually been a linear trajectory, you know, towards greater industry, but there's actually been kind of a bounce back towards a little bit more craft because often what, at least on an offensive level, uh, modern day cyber intelligence agencies are doing is trying to kind of work around um, encryption, for example. And there's just a lot of, well, I'll leave it there. That That's my personal assessment, but I would love to hear um, what you found in your research, what you hear from current signatures when you talk to them. Um, yeah.
3: Linearity or linear development is not something that, is characteristic of SIGINT history. It moves from one point to another in a range of possible behaviors from the moment it emerges. And so the, the the conflict or the relationship between these two approaches is always the case. Let me describe how SIGINT works today. There are two different ways it works. One is you identify the old conventional targets. So you identify Um, So Russian military intelligence, GRU networks, you identify PRC diplomatic links, you go after them, you use cryptanalysis, and you also use variants of hacking in order to read their traffic. And that's just a modern application of how Secant always is operated. And frankly, if anybody really thinks that's a bad thing to do, I'd like to pat them on the head and say, well. If you're really interested in that approach, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn, I'd be happy to talk about selling to you. But the new development, and it's one which is problematical and brings us toward the industry point, is the fact that there are billions of telecommunications events per day that could be intercepted. Um, You can store maybe hundreds of billions of telecommunications events for a period of several days. But at some point your ability to store that material runs out and you have to flush your system in order to bring in some new stuff to store. So this means that you're dealing now with hundreds of billions. I mean, maybe it's a hundred billion. I have no real idea. We're dealing with orders of magnitude. Now, in order to process this material, what happens is that British and American codebreakers have come up with amazing means by which you can simplify each event or message that you've intercepted and turn it into what they call metadata. In other words, what you've done is they reduce it to the IP address and a few other things. Now, what you can then do is analyze this material. And if you know you're interested in a specific IP address, What you can do is say, okay, I want to see every other IP address that this guy has been linked to in the past 24 hours or the past 48 hours. And you use this, which applies essentially traffic analysis, in order to work out the links between potential suspects or people you know are really bad news, in order to figure out who other targets are. And once you know who they are, this means that you now treat them the way you do GRU traffic. You now know that in the next round of intercepting and rounding up all of these messages, you absolutely certainly are going to bring those IP addresses into your system. Now finally what you then do is go from these hundreds of billions of messages where you're looking for needles and haystacks. Um, and the old Keith Alexander, who was director of NSA and the knots line that nowadays you need um, a haystack to find a needle, is true. But now when you reduce it to the targets you know you want to go after, then you can turn from traffic analysis, which is simply how you try to find the needles, to every form of analysis you can to try to break encryption, which is not easy. Even high-end commercial encryption these days is really hard to crack. Um, But you can then try to break into those systems. And if you're lucky, you can end up in the position you were in. If you look at the Mueller Commission's investigation, um, they published some material in, 2018, when they were bringing out a uh, legal claim to say that these following Russians were bad, bad people. But one of the things they're actually doing is describe a keystroke by keystroke set of communications, and memo-taking within GRU. In other words, some Western SIGINT agency has got so far into GRU traffic that you can actually see every Cyrillic letter that they are using to write out their attempts to um, subvert the 2016 American election. Now, I call that pretty good product. And I would say that anyone who thinks that is bad to do really needs to rethink their position. But on the other hand, I'd also say if they could do that to your communications or mine without a legal warrant, I'd be unhappy. Except they can't. They can't do it because NSA and GCHQ and CSE are all lawful organizations, by which I mean they don't like to break the law. And beyond that, there's too much to go after. Nobody cares what I write to my friends. A corporation might care about you know my data. A cyber criminal might try to exploit my naivete. There's not a single government on earth that cares about anything I write to my friends.
2: Professor Ferris, I want to close with two questions. So first, in the introduction of the book, you said that one of your goals in taking on this project was to codify some of the lessons of SIGINT for SIGINTers, because previously they have not had these types of uh, resources to turn to. So if you had to distill kind of one to two core lessons or however many you have distilled um, for a modern day SIGINTer, what would those be?
3: Just give me a moment, I'll sure that. Your game changes every day. In technical terms, your targets of modes of communication constantly alter. The way you succeed, technically speaking, today may fail you tomorrow. So you constantly need to be searching for alternative means to acquire access to topics. And make hay while the sun shines. If you have access to a source, squeeze it like a lemon. Because it may not be there tomorrow. Bear in mind, finally, that the classic problem with SIGINT is that you generate far more material than anyone can ever make use of. Or frankly, more than many analysts can ever fully understand. Um... And it's not simply the quantity of what you produce that matters. It's the significance of the individual pieces you go after. I mean, second is really an industrial scale phenomenon. And it is easy to, if all you're being asked to do is reach a numerical topic, well, to, uh, mer- numerical level, that's easily done. Knowing... What is really important requires constant interaction with your consumers. And the final thing I'll say is something which is not hard for realists to understand, but which is hard for lots of liberals. This is not a pleasant world. There are lots of people out there who don't like us, who would like to do bad things to us. And there are lots of neutrals who could provide useful material for us to look after our own interests. And in the hard-headed world we live in, SIGINT is an important means for us to survive. And although I am a Canadian liberal, which means that you would regard me as being a left-wing Democrat in terms of my position on you know, the internal issue, I believe in the Medicare system, for example, I'm an absolute hard-headed realist when it comes to external policy. SIGINT has proven consistently over the last century to be the most important form of intelligence, and it has been a success story which has helped our countries to do well in very bad times, and I believe that it will continue to do that.
2: So final question. I'm not sure if you had the chance to brief some of your findings to active reformer SIGINTers, but assuming you have, um, what is some of the most valuable feedback you have received? Or alternatively, were there any um, uh, aspects of your research that very much resonated with those you briefed your work to that kind of surprised you?
3: Actually, the very first thing that surprised me came when sig started to become open. Because up until that point, I had believed that sig knew much more about their history than proved to be the case. And when suddenly it became plain that Sikenters were asking historians to tell them their history, that really encouraged me because, in fact, I knew things about their history that they didn't know. And I can also tell you that moments when Sikenters looked at me with stunned surprise when I talked about things that had happened in, say, the First World War, again, what it showed me is that they didn't know their history, and the historians like me and the others who were working in the field, um, Steve Bajanski, I could name quite a few, um, are actually providing material to them which helps them understand what they've been historically. It's almost as though you could imagine sailors or soldiers not knowing their military or naval history of the past century. And then suddenly having somebody say to them, did you know this is how the United States Navy won the Battle of Midway?" And they'd look at you and say, holy Hannah, I didn't know that. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here.
2: Professor Ferris, thanks so much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.